0: Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Everyone, happy Sabbath to you all. Nice to be together again. Thanks to all the uh, people who contributed to the music. Nice to have uh, Olivia back. We missed the uh, tambourine. Of course, uh, Pastor Adrian is up in Ottawa speaking this week, one of the congregations that he helps to look after. Well, As Andrew read in the scripture reading, we're going to turn there to begin. Hebrews chapter 6. Today is the 20th day of the fifth month of God's calendar. and as Deacon Jan pointed out, we are a mere 40 days away from the Feast of Trumpets. Hebrews chapter 6, we've been throughout the book of Hebrews much of the last few months. And just to begin, we're going to read the first three verses of that chapter. Therefore, Paul says, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So we look at the book of Hebrews, which we've been looking at. We'll remember to whom it was written and why it was written. We recall the Hebrew Christians are being persecuted and are feeling the need to go back to their comfort zone of Judaism. And Paul, the writer of Hebrews, is pointing out that of all the things that they know, each and everything that they know, that Christ is better. And this knowledge of Jesus Christ usurps all of their previously understood doctrines. In essence, that's the where we're headed in the book of Hebrews. When we go through these lists of what Paul describes here is the elementary principles of Christ, the basics. If you think back over the last 18 months or so, we've covered all of them. We've covered law and grace in multiple ways. We've covered faith in various ways, both here and in the youth studies. We've covered the resurrections. We've covered eternal judgment in various ways. We think of our You've Been Lied To Bible Study series, and we're finding out how much doctrine is interwoven and we're reliant upon each other. But the one doctrine in here, described in this list of elementary principles of Christ, is the laying on of hands, which, to my recollection, it's been a while since I've even heard the subject covered. Let's go back to verse 12 of chapter 5 to talk about, again, why this book of Hebrews was written, as we review a little bit here. Verse 12 of chapter 5 tells us, For though by this time, speaking to these Hebrew Christians, you ought to be teachers by now. You still need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. And recall Paul's frustration with these folks who by this time should be leaders and pillars, teaching. And because of their their fear, and their step back into Judaism, they still need these foundational principles, which he's going to cover. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe, but solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Therefore, based on that need, based on the need to move forward into deeper things, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ. Let's leave those behind. We don't need to rehash those because we've rehashed them enough. You've, you've so, you you're so should be so experienced in that. Let us now go on to perfection, he says, not laying again these elementary principles, of which this laying on of hands is one. Yet we rarely hear it covered. And this came up in a conversation I had with Pastor Adrian a few weeks back that we had on anointing. So today what I would like to do is review this elementary principle known as the laying on of hands. And why is it a part of the foundational doctrines? It seems like something that is just a ritual that we use. We can see when we go through the talking about repentance from dead works, talking about faith toward God, about baptism, about the resurrections, about eternal judgment, those sound like foundational fundamental principles but this doctrine of laying on of hands is equally part of these foundational principles. So why is it part of these fundamental and foundational principles? What is the history of the use of the laying on of hands? Why is it important for us today? Because as we see here, in order for us to move on to perfection, we need to move beyond what he describes here as these foundational elementary principles. So that's what we're going to look at today is this doctrine of the laying on of hands. What we're going to do and as we've heard Pastor Watson say several times, we are going to today, hope your Bibles are greased up because we are going to flip through. There's quite a bit to go through. I usually don't fly through 40 scriptures, but I counted them just out there, and I, there are 40. So we will we will systematically go through this and hope that we come to an understanding of the history of the laying on of hands doctrine and why Paul includes it as part of these basic doctrines. Don't start counting and you'll know when we're, we're coming to the end. Why it's part of the basic doctrines and what purpose it has in our lives today. So let's go back, first of all, and look, look through its various applications. Go back to with me to start to Genesis chapter 48. Genesis chapter 48. Because as we'll see, there are multiple uses that God in the history, biblical history has used in this action called the laying on of hands. The first is the passing on of a birthright, more prevalent in ancient times. And we see here in Genesis chapter 48, pick it up in verse 12. So Joseph brought them, his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, from beside his knees, and he bowed down with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand, toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh with his left hand, toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. Then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all of my life long to this day, The angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. Let them be named upon them and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, so he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know he also shall become a people and he also shall be great. But truly, his younger brother shall be greater than he and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, by you, Israel will bless, saying, may God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And thus he said Ephraim before Manasseh. And we won't go. Obviously, we could go into a number of of uh, uh, tangents off of this. And we're not going to do that. We're simply going to stick to the texts here regarding the passing on of a birthright. We won't turn there, but you can note Genesis chapter 27, where Isaac, we recall when Jacob sold, or Esau sold his birthright for a pot of stew, the same principle was laid where Isaac passed on the birthright to Jacob. And for just for your reference, when obviously Joseph was the 11th born, I believe, why would his sons take on the birthright? you can note First Chronicles chapter 5 and verse 1 and 2, which talks about why Reuben's double portion, because the oldest received a double portion, was split between Joseph's two sons, and that was because he had violated his father's bed by sleeping with one of Jacob's concubines. But we see here the application of this laying on of hands by the ability to pass on a birthright. Is the First application that we note here for the use of the laying on of hands. What we're going to do is we're just going to enumerate the usage so that we can circle back and note the reasons why God has this in place. Let's go now to Exodus chapter 29. Exodus chapter 29. And we'll see that the second use of the laying on of hands is in the ordination of a church leader. And this goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 29. We'll pick it up in verse 4. When God's system of worship was being enumerated to the Israelites here, and Aaron and his family were made the priesthood. Verse 4 of Exodus 29. Aaron and his sons you shall bring to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and you shall wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments, put the tunic on Aaron, and the robe of the ephod, the ephod and the breastplate, and gird him with the intricately woven band of the ephod. You shall put the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. And you shall take the anointing oil, pour it on his head, and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put tunics on them, and you shall gird them with sashes, Aaron and his sons, and put the hats on them. The priesthood shall be theirs for a perpetual state, and so shall you consecrate Aaron and his sons." So in the setting apart of Aaron and his sons as part of the priesthood and that lineage that would flow through them, this act of, of Moses laying their laying hands on Aaron and his sons and anointing them was used. We can see Numbers chapter 27. Let's go to Numbers 27. Now we're not going to go through every example of every laying on of hands. Or there would be plenty more scriptures that we would need to go through. We're just going to specifically and strategically pick examples here so that we can then backfill that with some understanding as to why. So Numbers chapter 27, again, focusing on the use of the laying out of hands in the ordination, as we call it now, or the singling out of church leadership. We see that in Numbers 27. This is the selection of Joshua. Verse 18 Numbers 27 And the Lord said to Moses Take Joshua the son of Nun with you a man in whom is the spirit and lay your hand on him set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation and inaugurate him in their sight and you shall give some of your authority to him that all of the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient He shall stand before Eleazar the priest who who shall inquire before the Lord for him by the judgment of the Urim at his word they shall go out and at his word they shall come in he and all the children of Israel with him, all the congregation. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation, and he laid hands on him and inaugurated him just as the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses. So in this case, he was giving some authority over to Joshua, but this was, again, preparing Joshua years later when he would take on full leadership once Moses died and Joshua led them into the promised land. So we see here that God used this this act of the laying on of hands to set Joshua apart in front of the congregation so that they would see that part some of Moses' authority passed on to Joshua. Let's go to Acts chapter 6 and we see that this extends into the New Testament church and the the setting apart of people for different functions and offices. And here we note the selection of the first group of deacons in the New Testament church, Acts chapter 6. Again, we'll specifically stick to the use of the laying on of hands. We won't deviate from, onto tangents as to why these were used. We're simply looking at the laying on of hands. So we'll cut into the the context of verse 3. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, Full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenus, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. So we we see the priesthood set apart here. We see the leadership of the children of Israel. We see the office or the role of deacon being set apart here with a laying on of hands. And finally, let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. And we will see the setting apart of the eldership through this same process. verse 14 in 1 Timothy chapter 4. And do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of hands of the eldership. So again, the the use of Timothy as an elder was passed on to him through the other elders, and they used the laying on of hands to denote that in a, in a public fashion. So we've seen the passing on of a birthright. We've seen the the installation of, of leadership let's go to first Samuel chapter 9 and see that initially the installation of kings was done through the anointing process and the laying out of hands process so first Samuel chapter 9 verse 27 first Samuel chapter 9 verse 27. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to go on ahead of us. And he went on. But you stand here a while that I may may announce to you the word of God. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? When you have departed from me today, you will find two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, The donkeys which you went to look for have been found. And now your father has ceased caring about the donkeys and is worrying about you, saying, what do I do about my son? And then he continues on to tell him where he would go. But the point there is that Samuel took a flask of oil and anointed Saul to be the future king of Israel. And then we see later on in that chapter where he was proclaimed king publicly in front of the people, but here Samuel set him apart, God set him apart through Samuel, through the anointing process. Then we go forward a few chapters to chapter 16, where God selected King David, much further much, uh, much further down the road he, he would be coronated. But he was selected at a young age to become the next king. And we see that in First Samuel 16. Again, picking up the context after Samuel had gone through the first seven sons of Jesse. Verse 10 tells us that Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are all the young men here? Then he said, There remains yet the youngest, and there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was a ruddy he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, Arise and anoint him, for this is the one. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forth. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. And we see here that God selected David. To be anointed by Samuel. Again, a coronation or a pending coronation of kingship initially done in Israel through the laying on of hands. Let's now go back to Exodus 29 and we'll see a different usage of the laying on of hands. Exodus chapter 29. And we'll pick it up in verse 10. What we're going to look at here is the transfer of sin in the sacrificial system. So, part of the sacrificial system was to make the people clean. In this case, we're looking at the the priesthood initially to be to be consecrated and made clean. And we'll see how God uses this laying on of hands act to transfer of sin from the people into the animal that was to be sacrificed. So, Exodus twenty nine verse ten. You shall also have the bull brought before the tabernacle of meeting and Aaron and his sons shall put their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. You shall take some of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger and pour all the blood beside the base of the altar. You shall take all the fat that covers the entrails, the fatty lobe attached to the liver and the two kidneys and the fat that is on them and burn them on the altar. But the flesh of the bull with its skin and its offal you shall burn with fire outside the camp. Those are all details, but what I'd like to focus on here is it is a sin offering. So in order to transfer to make Aaron and his sons clean, ceremonial clean, ceremonially clean, they transferred through the laying on of hands the sins from Aaron and the priesthood into this bull that was then to be sacrificed for this sin offering. Let's go now to Leviticus 16 and see that it is done again in the ritual and the the act that occurred in Old Testament times, in ancient times, on the Day of Atonement with the Azazel goat. And we see that the Azazel goat had the sins of the people placed on it through the laying on of hands. Leviticus 16 and verse 20. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, when they've gone through the rest of the ceremonial acts on the day of atonement, the tabernacle of meeting, and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over all the iniquities of the children of Israel, and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. So there are two examples of sins of people, of a group of people, being placed on the head of an animal. In the first case, he was to be sacrificed. In the second case, he was to be released into the wilderness. But we see again this use of the laying on of hands to transfer sin ceremonially from people to animals. Let's now go to Acts chapter 8 and head into some territory we're more familiar with in that we continue to use the laying on of hands today for these items. Acts chapter 8 and in verse 14 we see that the giving of the Holy Spirit was done following full immersion baptism through the laying on of hands. And we pick it up in verse 14 of Acts chapter 8. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the Word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And when you do some look into the history of of the of this, these people there was a particular group that I believe followed Apollos and through John the Baptist that believed in water baptism, but they had not yet learned of the giving of the Holy Spirit. So Paul or Peter and John, sorry, not Paul, Peter and John introduced them to this this giving of the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands. Let's go forward to Acts chapter nine. And we'll see it again used. Acts chapter 9 and verse 17, where we see Paul received the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands. And Ananias, verse 17 of Acts chapter 9, went his way and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he received his sight at once and he arose and was baptized so we see a healing and we see a, a the giving of the holy spirit to paul here through the laying on of hands through this man ananias and finally in this this point let's go to chapter 19 of acts and again there's we could check out many many more scriptures that enumerate these these items but strategically picking some for purposes of explanation later. So Acts chapter 19, we see another example of, this was what I was referring to when we talked about Acts chapter 8, this through Apollos. Acts chapter 19, verse 1, it happened, while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus, and finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So he said so they said, Into John's baptism. And you can go back to, to items early in the book of John to, to read about John's baptism, as John was announcing the coming of Christ. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. So here we see several examples where the Holy Spirit was given to people after baptism, in some cases immediately after baptism, and in other cases considerable time after they were baptized. And we see that that was done for the purpose of giving the Holy Spirit. Let's go back to forward, actually, to Acts chapter 28, and we'll look at a couple of examples of a request for healing. Acts chapter 28. Because as we know, and we continue to use today through the the anointing process, a request to God for healing is done through the laying on of hands as well. Acts chapter 28, verse 7. In that region, there was an estate of the leading citizen of the island, whose name was Publius, who received us and entertained us courteously for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and dysentery. And Paul went into him and prayed, and he laid laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. And they also honored us in many ways, and when we departed, they provided such things as were necessary. So here's an example, one of many, where the laying on of hands was used for the purpose of asking healing from God. Now let's just go forward and cover James, chapter 5. James, chapter 5. The instruction from James in the general epistle here. James, chapter 5. Verse 14, and then we'll start to slow things down a little bit as far as scriptures go. James chapter 5, verse 14, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And then finally, the seventh one that I could determine, and there may be others that, that, that you have seen. Let's go back to Matthew. The book of Matthew, chapter... Looking for the blessing of little children, because I did not note it down, but as I'm thinking here, I thought it was Matthew 18 or 19. See it here, and I didn't note it down, but we do know the example that we use at the Feast of Tabernacles. of anyone. Sorry? 19? Thank you. Thank you, Eva. So, Matthew chapter 19, verse 13. And the little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them, saying, Let the. But the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. So we see that, we use that today as well in the blessing of little children to set them apart, to ask God to sanctify them and set them apart and protect them as they grow. And we see that as a seventh example of how throughout the course of biblical history this use of the laying on of hands was used. And again, there are many other examples that show that God clearly works through this idea of the laying on of hands And often with oil. We saw sometimes it was with oil, sometimes it wasn't. But why? Why would God use this laying on of hands? And why would it be considered a fundamental doctrine as we read in Hebrews chapter 6? Well, let's look at this use of the laying on of hands as part of the overall system of worship. And therein lies the key. It's part of an overall system of worship that God has delineated for us. So if we go to... 1 Timothy chapter 4, where we were, and we'll use this particular example. We were already there, but let's return there just briefly. 1 Timothy 4, verse 14. Where in the Greek here, Paul Paul notes to Timothy, Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of hands of the eldership. This word, hands, that is used here and other places in the New Testament is the Greek word, C-H-E-I-R. I don't know how to pronounce that, but it's cheir. And it's from uh, Greek 5495 from Strong's Concordance, and of course it means a hand. But its its inclination is an instrument of power, and it's applied to God when it's used to God. It's applied as a as a, to symbolize His might, to, to symbolize God's might, and it's true two, two root words are kemon C-H-E-I-M-O-N, which means a storm, and chasma, C-H-A-S-M-A, which means a channel or a gaping opening. So when you sort of look at these words together as they're, as they're noted in Strong's, it points toward God working through the hands of a human channel, or of a human being. So it's like an opening, and these hands, as they're applied, it's actually God working th- using the, the hands as a, as a gaping opening or as a channel that God works through. And that, that's going to be key to understanding the use of this laying on of hands in the, the doctrines of the church. That God works through the hands of a human being. And this is why it is done through the hierarchical system of leadership that God has put in place. When you noted every the, the examples, Moses uh, blessed Joshua. Jacob blessed Ephraim and Manasseh. Isaac blessed Jacob. Saul, Samuel blessed anointed Saul. Samuel anointed David. The apostles anointed the deacons. Timothy was told to lay hands upon the elders. Timothy himself was told that he was laid hands upon. So it is God working through this channel or this gaping opening symbolized by the hands in this this form of the Greek word for hands. And again, it's not about the human being at all. It's about God's system of worship. And we see a second point that we see when we read these, and we're not going to go over these again, but if you go and review what we read, you'll see that in almost all cases, it was done in conjunction with prayer. That when the the hands were laid on, they were done with prayer. Because it's not about the one who's doing the laying on of hands. It has to do with God working through the human channel, as that word indicates, and God doing his business with the one upon whose hands Upon whose head the hands are laid. And we can see that it was done with prayer. We noted in several instances when Jacob asked for God's blessing upon Joseph's sons. and we see the healing that was done, the giving of the Holy Spirit. In all in these cases it was done through prayer, that it's not again, it's not about the individual who is doing the laying on of the hands. It's about offering oneself as a channel through whom God works because it's about God's will being done. These rights, the right to pass on a birthright, the right to, to set church leadership, the right to coronate a king, the right to transfer sin from an individual to an animal so that those sins could be ceremonially made clean, the right to give of the Holy Spirit, the right to bless a child, the right to heal, these are God's rights. They aren't an individual's rights. So the human being simply acts as a channel through whom God can work. And that's going to be key to understanding this doctrine. And it displays how God has chosen to act in the lives of human beings through various forms of worship. Where it requires a decision from God, the human instruments use this method to denote coming under God's authority. The head is bowed, prayers are made, and the request is made to God through an individual. But again, it's it's the flow of, of God's decision through The use of the hands as a a gaping opening, as that Greek word means, to allow God's decision to flow through into individuals. Whether it be a birthright, whether it be healing, whether it be baptism and receiving the Holy Spirit, whether it be healing, whether it be leadership opportunities, or blessing of a child. And we see that today through the use of baptisms, ordinations, healing, blessing of children. All these are requests from us, to God based on a need and the individual's apparent readiness. So all these are whether a child is ready to be blessed, whether an individual is ready to be baptized, whether a potential leader is ready to be made a leader, whether an individual through God's will will be healed. These are simply requests of human beings to God made through prayer. And we can see how now this ties in to a system, part of the system of worship that God has designed. Now let's go back and look at some examples and note that there was a time through whom there were there were times through whom no human was around, through whom hands could be laid. Let's go back to Exodus chapter three. That on occasion God's will was done directly from God himself because there were no human beings through whom God could act. And we'll see that in Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, verse 9. And again, this is the account of Moses in the burning bush. Exodus chapter nine, Exodus chapter 3, verse 9. And again, cutting into the context for time's sake. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And then dropping down to verse 14, again, recalling the interaction between Moses and God. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name, and this is my memorial to all the generations. So there was no opportunity here for the people, like they did in the, say, the occasion of Joshua, to see the baton being passed, to see the authority go from Moses through to Joshua. This was simply God, on, on a high on a hill, and with a burning bush behind him, telling Moses, you are now my leader, and go tell the people. And we'll see that, go forward to chapter 34 of Exodus. Verse 29 when Moses came down from Mount Sinai later on with the Ten Commandments. Verse 29. Now it was so, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. So there was no opportunity for the congregation of Israel to witness an ordination of sorts. But Moses spent time with God, and God clearly made him the leader. And when he came down, there was an aura about him that was very clear that the people knew this man is something special. And this man has been chosen by God. So here God set Moses apart. We don't, there is no record of a laying on of hands because it was God himself. God didn't need to work through anybody because he made him a leader himself. But we know that he worked through Moses, as we read, to pass on the leadership to Joshua. Let's go now to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, to note. To look at the subject of healing, Matthew chapter 9. In verse 18. Matthew 9, verse 18. While he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So this, this ritual of the laying on of hands was familiar with these people. So Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. So here's an example of a healing being done without the laying on of hands. Because it was Christ. They didn't need to work through anybody. Sometimes, we and you'll see examples where Christ did lay hands on, and that's an example of the... to prepare the church for the usage of this laying on of hands, but it wasn't required, because here it was Christ himself. And when you note that the laying on of hands is is through a human channel, there's no human channel to need when it's Christ doing the healing himself. Let's go forward to Acts chapter 5 and note something interesting. Acts chapter 5 and verse 12. Through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. None of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. So clearly this group of apostles was looked up to. They were a special people, a special group of men. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. And also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Now it seems that the group of apostles were set apart as a special group of apostles. We can see that if we were to delve into other prophetical elements That the group of the apostles were a special people. We can go back and we won't take time to do that. But where Christ set upon them the the order to go and heal people, that in their case, they also didn't necessarily need to lay hands on. That they had the gift of healing given by God, his prerogative, that even the shadow of Peter to cast on them could heal them. This is a God-given gift of healing given to these men, By his discretion, that even the shadow of Peter, as we read here, could heal them. And they were all healed by various ways, as it says here. So again, Christ, and by God's direction, the apostles, did not always need to lay hands on people when they had the the ultimate gift of healing. But the directive today, as we read in James, is to call for the elders. Now let's go to John chapter 20 to look at a different example. John chapter 20. Verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. And as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this to them, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So this particular example, Christ simply was able to breathe the Holy Spirit. It's Christ's prerogative, as God, as the Son of God, to be able to breathe the Holy Spirit. And we'll see another example of that. Let's go to Galatians chapter 1. We read where Paul was baptized by a man, by Ananias, because there was an opportunity. God works through men, through human instruments. And Paul... Was baptized by a man, but to be included in the apostleship was different. Colossians chapter one verse eleven. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God who separated, separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were the apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So he didn't even go to the apostles for this. He was brought for three years to be taught by Jesus Christ and was made an apostle by Jesus Christ. Again, no need of laying out of hands in this case because this was directly from Christ. And there's no record of an ordination, just like there is no record of an ordination of the apostles because it was conferred upon them by Jesus Christ himself, who, as the Son of God, would not need to work through any human channels, which again lays a foundation for the type of apostles that these these gentlemen were. This was a special group of apostles ordained by ordained set apart by Christ. So Paul here we read was baptized by a man, but ordained his office directly by Jesus Christ, like the others who had no record of an ordination, except for Matthias. We know that Matthias was picked apart, picked by the eleven. But when we read 1 Timothy 4, which you don't need to turn to, in Acts chapter 6 and other baptismal examples, there were human instruments available. So when there are human instruments available, when Paul simply needed to be baptized, it was done through a human being. But when he needed to be made an apostle, there was no need for the laying on of hands. He He was directly from Christ. Or at least there's no record of a laying out of hands. Now let's look at some warnings to use this system properly. We're close to 1 Timothy. Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 5. And we'll see and we'll get more evidence that this is part of the overall system of worship because there are warnings to use this properly. And we see this first of all here in 1 Timothy chapter 5. We'll pick it up in verse 21. Again, talking about the eldership, so that part of the laying out of hands, the installation of elders, being one of several uses of the laying on of hands. Verse 21, I charge you before God, Paul says to Timothy, and the Lord Jesus Christ, and the elect angels, that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. And that stems back to chapter 3, when he talks about the, the uh, qualifications for such that it wasn't up to Timothy to just choose someone he liked, but they had to meet qualifications, and we'll go into that a little bit later. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins, and keep yourself pure. There was a warning to Timothy not to use this hastily, that it was to be used properly with God's because it was from God, because he had to be plugged in and in tune with, what, with, with God's will as best he could, through the use of things like the list that Paul gave in in chapter 3. But again, a warning not to use it hastily. Now let's go back to 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12. This is the story of Jeroboam, which we covered in a sermon, I think. It was covered last year, and definitely in the youth study. Where God selected Jeroboam to take most of the kingdom away from Rehoboam, Solomon's son. But, of course, Jeroboam made some wrong decisions, which we're going to see. And we're going to just, for purposes of of the text here, go to verse 31 of 1 Kings chapter 12. And we'll see some of the sins that Jeroboam committed with regard to the system of worship. So verse 31 of 1 Kings 12, he made shrines on the high places, and made priests from every class of people who were not of the sins of Levi. We know what God commanded throughout in the law, that the priesthood, which we read about, was good to go through the Aaronic line. But here Jeroboam selected priests from every class of people and those who were not of the sons of Levi. He then continued on to ordain a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did at Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made, And at Bethel he installed the the priests of the high places which he had made. So there's no no record of installing priests properly, but just Jeroboam selected who he wanted. It didn't matter their their lineage. It didn't matter their class, as as, as the word is used here. And at Bethel he installed the priests of the high places which he had made. So he made offerings on the altar, which he had made at Bethel on the 15th day of the 8th month, in the month which he had devised in his own heart, and he ordained a feast for the children of Israel and offered sacrifices on the altar and burned incense. So he was making a complete mockery of the system of worship. And in doing so, selected priests who had no business being priests. But Now, the key to this is chapter 13 and verse 33. Skipping through the, the punishment of Jeroboam and God working through others to, to show him what he did. Verse 33. After this event, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way But again, he made priests from every class of people for the high places. Whoever wished, he consecrated him, and he became one of the priests in the high places. And note verse 34, and this thing, this one thing about about using this function, this part of the system of worship, the way he wanted to do it, was the sin of the house of Jeroboam so as to exterminate and destroy it from the face of the earth. Of all the things Jeroboam did. It was the improper selection of the priesthood, because it did not follow God's or God the God ordained way of selecting leadership, and we see here that just by selecting whoever He wanted, not following the, the pattern God set, that that was the one, the, ultimately the sin that brought Jeroboam down. So leaders must use their best judgment in conjunction with clearly outlined biblical principles, whether it be ordination, whether it be baptism, ensuring that. Are ready that there is some counseling done in baptism, healing ordinations that determine that people have the faith that they have the character in evidence to proceed. Let's go to Acts chapter five and note that it is not always this evident as it was in this case to Peter. Because sometimes people have wrong motives, as we noted with Jeroboam, selecting whoever he felt, whoever he wanted, for that in that that particular case. So Acts chapter 15, verse 18. I've selected a wrong scripture, I think. toys today. I'm looking for um, uh, Simon Magus. There it is. Sorry. Acts chapter Acts chapter eight is where I wanted to go. Acts chapter eight. Which we had already read when well, we read about uh, um, Verse 14, when the apostles of Acts chapter 8, verse 14. Sorry, let me reset here. And when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit, which we already read. And when Simon saw, through the laying on of the apostles' hands, that the Holy Spirit was given, he offered money saying, give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. So again, noting here that it is important that the right motive be in place with those who are having hands laid upon them. The next point, when the human instrument or the the one through whom the, the the hands are laid on follows all of the proper steps, is now incumbent upon the person having hands laid on them to continue on the right path. If someone drops away, like Saul did, or Diotrephes in the example of 3 John, or the examples we have throughout our church history of those who may have fallen away, it is not a reflection on the one who did the laying on of the hands. He's because he is simply an instrument of God through whom God works. And as long as that person follows through on 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 establishing motive and establishing that that they meet the criteria, is not incumbent upon the one who did the laying on of hands. Did it had come upon the person who is either baptized, is either ordained, is either uh, uh, requested the healing to maintain their faith in God so that the process the process is maintained? We know that whenever a people come to God, He begins by setting up His system of worship. He did it with Moses. He did it with Samuel and the kingship. He did it with Ezra. He did it with Christ and the apostles in developing the New Testament church. How God works through humans has always been very well articulated. And those who are in positions of instrumentation, the ones doing the laying on of hands in this case, understand this. And we see when Paul, back in 1 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14, where Paul said, I thank God that I baptize none of you except Crispus and Gaius lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Paul understood he was just a channel. Paul understood he was just a vehicle through whom God bestowed the Holy Spirit. And it wasn't it didn't matter whether Paul baptized, Apollos baptized, John baptized, it mattered. And it could have been anyone as long as they were following God's ordained structure. How we worship God matters to him. Which brings us to today, which brings us down to the application of this doctrine today. We generally use it for baptism, ordination, requests for healing, and the blessing of children. These are all part of our God-ordained system of worship. God calls people to his church. God calls people to lead his flock. God blesses children. In these cases, he does this through human instruments, but he's provided guidelines to help human instruments determine if people are ready for these things, for baptism. That's why there's a need for some counseling to, to make sure that this is such an important step in a person's life that they've considered what sin is, that they've considered what repentance is, that they've considered that the hand must be attached to the plow and can't be turned back. So there's a process by which the human instrument can do his best to determine the readiness of an individual for baptism. And as far as denoting leadership, he provides through the Apostle, through the Apostle Paul, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, which you don't need to turn to, the listing of qualifications for leadership. But let's go back to Acts chapter 6. I want to point something out here. Because Acts chapter 6 is often noted, and as something that we practice, that the congregation selects those and puts forward people for deaconship. But there's something interesting that God's, that God, much like he does in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, provides a listing of qualifications. And he even does it here for the people to consider. And we specifically read chapter 3. Therefore, brethren, seek, seek out from among you. That's the part we focus on. The church has, an, has a, an opportunity to select from amongst themselves when there is a need, people to serve in the deaconship. But... There's a list here. It's a small one, but there's a list. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom who we may appoint over this business. So it wasn't just select from amongst you your favorite person, whoever you liked, whoever you owed a favor to. Good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, and full of wisdom. So that we can, can, can continue can give ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the, of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. So there's a, a notation there that they, they complied with the requirements of God by, by following these prescribed guidelines, that they were full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. So even when names were put forth, there was a list of qualifications that were provided first. Now let's drop down into, just for the last Five minutes here, or so James chapter one. I want to talk about the last application that we use, the request for for healing. James chapter one. James chapter five. Man, oh man. James chapter five. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. This is done under the instruction here of James through the eldership. Now the word for anoint is the Greek word alipho, 2.18 in the Greek concordance. And it simply means with oil. That's what the word anoint means. It simply means with oil, or with perfume, as you know, uh, on occasion in Matthew, where the lady anointed Christ's feet with perfume. It's important to understand that the re- requesting an anointing is part of the act of worship. It demonstrates faith in God and his system of worshiping. This is why it shouldn't matter who lays hands upon you. It shouldn't matter in a baptism sense. It shouldn't matter in an ordination sense. It shouldn't matter in a request of healing. I would have loved to have been in Leamington last year to help ordain brother, brother Adrian into his role of an eldership, but that was, that was purely selfish because I'm a friend of his. It, it matters not who does that. I, I would love to, have to eventually baptize some of our children, but that's simply selfish because I have feelings for them. The key is the, the need to be baptized. The key is the need to fill a role. And it shouldn't matter who, as Paul said, why he chose not to do a lot of baptizing because it was important that it not be about Paul. Because we, the, act, the simple act of falling under the laying on of hands is a submission to the authority and the worship of God Almighty. We use the word sick. It's the Greek word asthenio, seven seventeen. It means weak, feeble, without strength, or diseased. Now, let me preface this by saying this is my personal opinion in some of the application of the anointing. Some do it rarely. Some do it too rarely. Some do it too often. There are, there are cases in both. It has been many, many, many years since I've requested an anointing for myself. But it is part of our worship of God. When we are weak, when we are sick or feeble physically, mentally, emotionally or spiritually, There is is an application here from the pen of James to go to the elders of the church and seek an anointing. Is it for every little sniffle? Not for me, in my opinion, in my case, which is why I haven't been sick enough to request an anointing. Not for every little sniffle. But if I were to become weak or sickly or diseased or diseased as part of it, there's an obligation for me in my act of worship before God to seek an anointing from the pen of James. But if you feel that your condition is one of weakness, sickness, or feebleness, then part of your worship of God involves a request of anointing. Not from any human individual. That is who God works through. But it's part of your worship of God. It's part of your faith for God. Verse 16 says, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So there is validity in prayer groups. Prayer lists, which we do. We have a congregational prayer we, have, we submit prayer lists for people to keep in mind the people in, on the, in your individual prayers. And praying as a congregation together, Bonota comes after the command to call for the elders of the church. Again, it not, has nothing to do with the eldership. It has to do with submitting to the worship of God. That part of your worship of God is when, required, when needed, when sick, feeble, weak, diseased, to call upon the elders of the church so that they can be the channel through whom the anointing is done that you. Come under the worship of your God through this act of the laying on of hands. Again, a prayer group, which we, which we participate in, which we do here, is, is excellent. It's ongoing. It helps keep the congregation together. It helps keep us focused on praying for one another. But in the list, it comes second. There's an actual request here that when you are sick to call so that hands may be laid upon you so that it it shows God your your submission to his to worshiping him Acts chapter 19 let's go back and look at Acts chapter 19 again my opinion based on the scripture Acts chapter 19 Verse 11, now God worked unusual miracles, Acts 19 verse 11, by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. So this act of, of hands being laid upon was so important that a provision for anointing was made when distance precluded it and we use that application today with what's called the, an anointed cloth. But often people request an anointed cloth. Again, my opinion. Let me step back a second. So the provision of, of anointing is so important, even when distance precludes it, that there's an example here of Paul using a cloth set that represented Paul's hands being laid on them. Why? Because the laying on of hands is such a part of the system of worship that God provides an opportunity when distance precludes it that anointed cloth can go much like Passover is such an important part of the system of worship that if you can't make Passover there's a second Passover 30 days later if distance precludes an anointing there's an anointed cloth but it seems to me again my opinion that we that we request an anointing not an anointed cloth because there could what what is was first and foremost is to call for the elders of the church so that hands can be laid upon now, I've sent, we've sent anointed cloths to because we're so scattered. It's, it's much easier when distance happens to, to use an anointed cloth. But the decision to send a cloth should be left to the anointer when needed. The act of, of having hands laid upon you is part of the system of worship. And it's our duty for those who God has placed in this position and our pleasure to anoint. So do not hesitate to call should you feel the need for an anointing. You're not inhibiting us. You're not uh, taking away from our family time. It's part, of, it's part of what it's our duty and our pleasure to, fo- to be the channel through whom God can allow you to worship. Let's go back to Hebrews 5 to conclude. Hebrews chapter 5. There are numerous other stories, examples throughout scripture of the laying on of hands for anointing, for healing, for ordination, for coronation, for baptism, for blessing, passing on blessing. As we continue to develop, both as individuals and collectively as a congregation, doctrine is part of our path to perfection. Verse 14, which we read, Solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying in the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God of the doctrine of baptisms, of the laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Throughout the history of God's interaction with mankind, how we worship him has always been part of the process. As we are seeing in our You've Been Lied To series, all doctrine is important, and ultimately all doctrine is woven together. The laying out of hands forms a key part of how we worship. It acknowledges God's desire for order and the precision with which he wants to be worshipped. Furthermore, it reminds those who are in a role through whom God lays hands upon people that we simply serve as a conduit for the glory of God's people toward him. It's just an instrument. It's just a, 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 It should be a faceless use of hands through whom you have a connection, a conduit, to worship God. On the heels of Paul's admonition to the Hebrew Christians not to lay again the foundation of repentance, he tells them in verse 9, and we will close with this. Why this laying, not laying again the foundation? of the elementary principles, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto until the end, that you do not become sluggish but imitate those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.